Father, once again, we are assembled here together on a Sunday morning. And Lord, we want to worship you with our songs. Lord, with the preaching, with the invitation, with the offering, with the special music. Lord, we're asking that each thing that we do would be empowered by your grace to bring honor and glory to your name. We ask that when we come to the time of invitation, that not a one of us would withhold from you what is your due, that you would help us to understand what it means to live the real Christian life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Finger, if you would, and just stick it in your Bible at Job chapter 1, and then turn with me, if you would, to James chapter 5, and... uh, do try to keep uh, the sermons in in somewhat touch with what's going on in the world around us and did not really plan it this way. Of course, we we live in a world that is full of trouble and you can't help but paying attention to the news. Uh, Friday night is uh, we were gathering for our family fun night and uh, had a lot of time, uh, fun there and enjoyed it. Uh, Ourselves, there was great uh, sorrow and 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 uh, trouble there in Paris, and we need to be in prayer for those families. Uh, we need to pray for our government and the governments of this world that they will understand what's going on. But I'd like for us to look at James chapter five and and verse eleven, and then we're going to go through the book of Job uh, this morning and try to. Glean some things there that I think will be uh, a hope and trust, will be a help and a guidance to us. It says in verse 11, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. And so as James is closing his letter here, he's challenging the people to be patient, to wait as the Lord does things in his time schedule and not ours. And so as he is explaining, he's already used the example of the farmer who plants and has to wait until the harvest comes in. And then he uses the example of Job. He said, you've heard of the patience of Job. And um, how many of you have read through the book of Job, all 42 chapters in your Bible? Would you just lift up a hand there if you've done that at least once? Uh, Job is an incredible book. Uh, It is, if you really want to, uh, uh, an interesting study, read through the book of Job with an ear open uh, as you pick up different phrases uh, that are used in the book of Job that we use every day. How many times have you heard the phrase, the patience of Job? Uh, that comes from the book of the Job. How many of you have heard, with friends like these, who needs enemies? Uh, that comes from the book of Job. And, uh, I mean, there are so many. We, I don't want to distract from the main point of the message this morning by going through and just finding little phrases. Uh, but I am reminded of a, a sermon I heard preached many years ago by a preacher named Sam Gipp. Uh, he said, if you speak English, you will quote the King James Bible. 
and that is very true. Uh, it is one of those formative books. It influences our language. You can't read Sherlock Holmes without reading quotations out of the Bible. Uh, you can't read almost any major literature without reading something that somehow came from your Bible. Now, that's all free. It has nothing to do with the sermon this morning. Uh, but you've heard of the patience of Job, have you not? And what I want us to do is I want us just to walk through the book of Job this morning. And I, I promise you, I was looking through my notes. Uh, we spent uh, about uh, five or six months uh, several years ago going through the book of Job. We're not going to try to do that this morning, all right? Uh, but uh, go back with me to Job chapter 1, if you would. And uh, it tells us a little bit about Job. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now, that tells us a little bit about Job. And by the way, if you're wondering where the land of Uz is, it is mentioned in other places of the Bible. Uh, we're not exactly sure the reference, but it, it tends to be somewhere south and east of the land of Israel. Uh, they claim, and, and our best understanding, that Job is actually uh, uh, chronologically the oldest uh, book in the Bible as far as its history that Job may have even predated Abraham or been a contemporary of Abraham when all of these things happened. And so Job was a real man. He was the richest man of the East, it tells us. But he was one that feared the Lord. He eschewed or he hated evil. He did everything he could to hinder the working of evil in his area of influence. And even... So careful was he that when his sons had their special week of feasting, everyone had uh, the family over for his day of the week, uh, that Job would predate any of the festivities by getting up and offering seven sacrifices, one for each of his sons. Now, I'll tell you what, if you were one of Job's sons, It'd be kind of hard for you to have a wild, sinful party when you know Dad was offering a sacrifice for everything you did in the morning before anything started. Now, wasn't it? Well, that was part of Job's holiness and part of his desire for the righteousness of his sons. Job 
arguably was the most godly man alive on the planet at his time. In fact, he was such a godly man. When we get down to verse 8, it says, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Now, there are many, many things that we could get and many different directions that we could go in as we go through the book of Job. But if you want the overall theme to the book of Job, it's simply this. Let God be God. And before we dig into the details, how many of you have ever tried to help God out? Uh, God, I know that you don't make mistakes, and God, I know that you know everything, but, 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 uh, oh boy, be careful there. God does not need our help. Have you ever thought about the fact that God doesn't think? He doesn't have to think. We think about everything. In fact, we'll find out that that was Job's biggest problem, was thinking. Uh, the issue is that God doesn't think about anything. He already knows what is best. That's why he gave us a book called the Bible. Many times people will come in and, and, and I, I want to... Uh, they'll say, Pastor, I need some counsel on this. And we'll sit down and start talking and say... Oh, oh, Pastor, aren't you interested in hearing hearing my whole story? And I'm, sometimes, depending on what story is, I'll say, you know, I, I really don't need to know your story because I already know what the answers are. It's written down in the Word of God. You see, God doesn't need to hear all your details. What you need to do is listen to the Lord. Could we say amen to that? I know that's not comfortable. I know there is uh, some kind of release in being able to relate everything that you feel and everything that you think is happening. But the thing you need to understand is God already knows. And the answer to our solution is not, uh, to our problem, the solution to our problem is not in me finding ways to express myself and to relieve this burden that I'm carrying around, but the answer is taking that burden and handing it to Him who alone is capable of carrying it. You know how we like to hand our burdens to God? This way. Lord, I know you need to carry the burden, but I'm just going to put one hand on it to make sure it's still there. And we wonder why we get crushed under the weight of what's going on in the world around us. The the Bible says, casting your care. Do you know how you cast something? Uh, Like a baseball. A pitcher casts the baseball. Not like a fisherman who casts the lure with a string tied to it. Amen? Uh, There's a difference. 
And when we cast our cares upon Him, we're not supposed to keep a hold of them ourselves. We're supposed to allow God to take care of them. I mean, Job, as we find him in the beginning, someone has offered the idea, well, God just wanted to bless Job more. Well, how could God bless Job more? He was already the richest man in the entire East. He was already such a holy man that when the devil was looking for something to do, God said, you haven't said a word about Job. Now, why would God do that? Because Job wasn't listening to the devil. You know, if you want the devil to leave you alone, stop listening to him. Now, you might have to get out a pair of shears and cut the cable connection to get that to happen. Uh, You might just have to unplug the internet on your computer, but I mean... If you want the devil to bother you, start listening to him. I'll tell you what, that's what he wants. He wants attention. If there's anything that chases the devil away, it says resist steadfast in the faith. Well, how do you do that? Well, you've got to pay attention to the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. And when you do that, you ignore him. And there's nothing more fearful to the devil than a human being that's being obedient to God. Why do you think the devil attacked Job in the ways that he did? And so, Job, arguably the most religious man, the most holy man, the most acceptable man in the sight of God. Who knows? Maybe Job lived before Noah. We, we don't know. But we know that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And we know that when the devil came before the Lord, the Lord said, how about Job? He flies in the face of everything you think you're accomplishing on this earth. And the devil says, Job is only worshiping you because you've made him rich. And so God gives to the hand of the devil, into his hands, everything that Job owns. And you know, the devil's a master plotter. You couldn't do it any better than what the devil did. And you read how that servant after servant came to Job and said, You've lost everything. All the servants are dead. I am escaped Alone, Job went from a very great household to four servants and a wife. All of his possessions, you didn't keep money in the bank in those days. You kept it in the field. It was on the hoof, as we might say. And it gave us a listing of all of these animals that Job owned, and that was his income. And, and, and the wealth that he possessed was tied up in all of these things, and he lost it all. And here is Job's response. I want you to look at verse 20. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head, and fell down, fell down upon the ground and wept. Is that what your Bible says? No, your Bible ought to have a different word in there. It says, and worshipped. 
the first thing I want us to notice about Job was Job was a man that worshipped God. He worshipped God when he had everything. He worshipped God when he lost everything. In chapter 2, when he lost his health and his wife comes to him and, and, and asks him, why don't you give up this God thing? He's not doing you any good. And Job did not charge God foolishly. I want to challenge you here. Job was not overwhelmed. And, and when, if you're familiar with the book of Job, you know that at the end of the book of Job, the last several chapters of the book is God addressing Job's problems. It, it is God, as, as we might say, dressing down or uh, uh, condemning some of the things that Job has done during this, uh, this book. And I, I want you to understand something. What got Job to that point where God had to come down from heaven and correct him was not the things that we would think. When he lost everything, including his children, everything was either stolen or killed in one day. Verse 22 of chapter 1, In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Look at chapter 2. Verse 10. But he said unto her, His wife speaketh as thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Now, Job is not using the word evil as in sin. He's using the word evil as in terrible calamities that happened to him. He was consumed by boils from head to toe at this point. He had lost everything that he possessed. And he said, sometimes bad things or evil things happen. And God lets it happen. You know what? Job didn't sin when he lost his health. He didn't sin even when his wife came and challenged him to forsake God. And if we go back to the end of the book, Job even got over, God had to correct him, but Job got over all the problems that his friends had caused him. He got over. He prayed for his friends. And it says, when Job prayed for his friends, chapter 42, verse 10, that God turned the captivity of Job and began to bless him again in a greater and more fabulous way than he did the first time. So one of the challenges, we're looking through the book of Job and and if you really want an interesting time, it's only 42 chapters. That's about five or six chapters a day. You, you could read through the book of Job between now and next Sunday and, and not uh, injure yourself in any way, I promise you. Uh, and, and you'll see these things that we're talking about. 
You know where Job got stuck? Well, let's get this in before we go there. I want you to turn with me to chapter 13 and verse 15 of the book of Job. And I want you to understand something. Even though that Job was tripped up a little bit during the book and God had to come down and correct him in person and in a very harsh way at times, Job never stopped trusting God. Look at verse 15 of chapter 13. Here's what Job is saying. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. But I will maintain mine own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for an hypocrite shall not come before him. Now, this was part of Job's answers to his friends. He says, even if God were to take my life, I'm going to trust him to the very end. He said, I'm going to maintain my ways before him. Now, what he was talking about there was what he was doing in Job chapter 1 before all of this trouble came was right. And Job knew it was right because he had God's word upon it. And he said, I'm going to keep doing what's right. And that is going to turn to my salvation is because that's what faith is. It's taking God's word off the paper, and putting it in your shoes, as the man might say. It's believing the Word of God to the point of obedience. That is the working definition of faith. And Job never lost faith in God the whole way through the book, even though he said some things that were very unadvised, even though he... He he got tripped up and God had to uh, clean him up. I want you to go with me to chapter 19. And we're going to read just part of one of Job's speeches here. Job is is rebutting his friends. And, of course, with friends like these, you don't need enemies. Amen? And he says in verse 21, Have pity on me. Have pity on me, O ye my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. Why do ye persecute me as God and are not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. Now, did God answer Job's prayer? He most certainly did. We have Job's words recorded in a book. It's called the book of Job. Amen. And God has promised to preserve His Word forever, and He has, and we have it this very day. Now, here's Job's statement of faith. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that He shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Now, you know what Job is doing, and and we're saying historically, uh, though the book of Genesis gives us history, that, that this is probably the oldest book in our Bible, Job is speaking of things that are dealt with in the book of Revelation in great detail, and Job is perfectly accurate in his statement. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and He's going to stand on the earth. And Jesus will. That's what we're looking for. He'll do that at the battle of Armageddon. And the mountain on which Jerusalem stands is going to be split in two. 
And the nation of Israel is going to hide in the valley while the armies of the Antichrist are destroyed. But we're also looking for that meeting in the air that's going to happen about seven years before that. Amen? And Job is alluding to these things. And he says, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, with whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Job says, though my body is destroyed, though my mind, I lose my mind completely, he says, in my flesh, I'm going to see God. Job knew more than 90% of people who call themselves Christians in all ages know. He explains the physical bodily resurrection of the saved and standing before God in judgment. Your whole New Testament is, is explaining these few sentences that Job is making right here in his defense and his statement of faith in God. So let's just look at Job from this perspective. Number one, Job was a man that worshipped God. He worshipped God before he lost everything. He worshipped God when he lost everything. When he lost his health and was reduced to nothing but a few servants and his wife from being the greatest man in the East, he still worshipped God. And when we get to the end of the book, he's praying for his friends that God would forgive them. And he's still worshipping God. Amen? And even in the midst of all of this banter back and forth between his friends and all that is going on. Job never lost faith in God. You know, those who teach that you can lose your salvation do not study their Bible very carefully. I mean, some of the things that Job said he, he actually charged God with having made a mistake. He said, God, uh, I wish I could had someone that, would, that you and I could deal with like I would with a judge here on earth because you would know that you're wrong and I'm right. I mean, Job said that. That's blasphemy. If you could lose your salvation, certainly you should for that, shouldn't you? But Job never did. Because you can't lose your salvation. Because it's something that God does. It's not something you do. And so what I would like us to look at is what actually overwhelmed Job. Where Job lost it. Because I think we'll learn something here that will help you It has helped me when we deal with trouble in our lives. You know where Job lost it? Job lost it when he started listening to the explanations of his friends. You know, I've I've known many preachers over the years, and, and one of the things that I've watched is 
preachers, uh, we, we have a lot of changes. Uh, people often say, well, what Bible college did you go to? Well, I can't, I can't recommend the Bible college that I went to. It's not the same school. When, when I was there, the school taught that God's Word in the English language was in this book that I hold in my hand. Today, if you made that statement, you'd be laughed off the campus. When I was there, the college taught, and the Bible says that you ought to be separated from the world. That you ought not go to the world. In fact, we had a preacher come in and teach a whole uh, week's conference on the evils of rock music and how it had no part in the life of a Christian. And now their music department teaches nothing but... Oh, uh, they have the classics still. You, you have to learn how to play it right before you can pervert it. That's a whole other sermon. Uh, but if you're going to do it wrong, you've got to learn how to do it right first. And so they still teach some of that stuff. But the music that they use in their chapel is all, all rock music today. They don't have a service without an electric guitar and a drum set. So they go, how in the world did the school change so much? Well, I remember when I was a student, we had some people talking about we need to develop a philosophy of ministry and we need to think, sit down and start thinking about how we do the, and why we do the things we do. And I remember hearing some sermons while I was a student there and always trying to figure out what was wrong with the sermon because everything they said really seemed right. Said you got to keep big things big and little things little. Keep the main thing the main thing. And how could you be more right than that? Well, the only problem is who defines what the main thing is? Well, if the Bible is not defining it, if God is not defining it, then you will be. And guess what? You will do it wrong. Every time. You're just going to do it wrong. Because you're a human being. That's why God gave us a written word, is so that we would have something that we could trust. And I want you to, if you want to just listen to some of these verses, i got about a dozen of them I'd like to read through here very quickly, but I want you to listen closely and see if you can find anything that is wrong in what I'm reading. Behold, happy is the man... Whom God correcteth, therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. Is there anything wrong with that verse? Aren't we commanded in in, uh, Proverbs and again in the book of Hebrews to understand that the chastening of the Lord is to our betterment? And that God has to deal... This was in the book of Job before any of those books were written. And it says that despise not the chastening of the Almighty. Isn't that right? But let me tell you something in the context with which one of Job's friends used this verse. It was all wrong. Let's try another one. Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evildoers. How many agree with that verse? Isn't that true? God's not going to destroy a righteous man. And yet his friend said, Job, you've been destroyed, therefore you're not righteous. Was that what God was saying? Now, here's an ancillary thought to the book of Job. 
God was using Job's suffering to slap down the devil. You know, I've heard a lot of people talk about, I'd like to give the devil an old black eye. You want to know who the only man in the Bible that ever gave the devil a black eye was Job. Because Job went through all that suffering and still did right. He's the only man that's ever done that. And God was using Job to rebuke the devil. But what a price Job had to pay to get it done. But I will tell you this. When God's doing it, when it's all said and done, you'll be glad that God did it His way and not your way. You will. Because God is perfect in His wisdom. And even as God allowed Job to suffer all these things, but his friend was making a statement that was absolutely true. But it was absolutely wrong in the way it was applied. Job 9 and verse 2, it says, I know it is so of a truth, but how shall a man be just with God? Job 29, uh, chapter 20, verse 29, this is the portion of a wicked man from God. And the heritage appointed unto him by God. Does God judge the wicked? Absolutely. That's why there's a place called hell. It's real. And it's forever. But was Job being judged by God for his wickedness? No, that wasn't going to happen until chapter 40. So... How can, how then can a man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? This is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage of oppressors which they shall receive of the Almighty. Can I tell you something you already know? The best lies are stuff full of truth. Isn't that true? That's why nobody believes politicians. They don't have any truth to stuff in their lies. They're just lies. And we see that and we understand that. But let me tell you, the best lies are stuff full of truth. And the devil is the best liar. And his greatest servants aren't the guys in the bars and the nightclubs and the dens of iniquity. They're not on the websites that talk about immorality and all of these things. They get up before people dress like a preacher. Some of them even wear little collars and let everybody know that they're a holy man by their dress. One of the amazing things that I, I hear as a preacher is say, well, I'd like to invite you to church. Oh, I don't need church. I say, well, what, what church do you go to? And they'll give me the name of a church. And I'll say, but 
do you believe in that church? Oh, no. The, the priests are all evil men and I don't believe in the Pope and I don't confess my sins. And I don't. I said, did you ever tell that to your priest? He said, no. I said, they throw you out of that place. I said, why do you, if you really believe that, why do you go to that church? He said, you ought to come to our church. We have none of that stuff here. We just believe the Bible. And they usually end up saying something like, well, you're just like them. And I say, uh-uh. So you can say what you want, but it's different at this church. Because we have the Bible. And the only way you'll know is you've got to come. And you'll hear the Bible. But you see, if someone put on the door of their church, we believe the Bible, about 5%. Everything else we do in our church comes from man. How many people do you think would walk into that church? Would any thinking person walk into a church that's 95-5? Man versus the Bible. Well, there's a lot of churches that fall in that category, aren't there? Hello? How many of you used to go to a church like that? I mean, they held up the Bible, said, we believe it, but nothing in the Bible they did. It was all traditions. Come on, just for a minute, say, hey, I used to attend that kind of church. You see, what was going on here was people had the truth. But instead of concentrating on what was actually true, they were concentrating on what they thought about it. And could I challenge you that that is the root of all false worship. That is how the devil entangled Eve in the Garden of Eden. God said, neither shall ye eat of it. What did Eve say? Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it. She added to God's word. Did that not make perfect sense? If you don't touch it, you'll never eat it. How many times have you heard your mother say, don't even touch it? Well, that's good advice. But it wasn't God's word. It was Eve's thoughts about God's word. It was Eve's philosophy of ministry, if I could borrow a modern day phrase. Or her mindset. Oh, I hate that phrase. Your mind is not set on anything. I can tell you a funny joke and you laugh. I can tell you a sad story in the next minute and some of you would cry. Your mind isn't set on anything. Listen, those are all little tricks the devil's using to take your mind off of. Let God be God. That's the theme of the book of Job. That's what God was doing. You know what God loves to do? He loves to slap down the devil. And you know what? He did it. He loves to confound the wise. And oh my, before we, are, we tend to look at the, uh, the book of Job and take Job's three friends and drag them through the mud, 
I'll challenge you, if we had all the brains in this room and we could put it into one head, we wouldn't even make up Bildad to Shuhite, the least of Job's friends. We're not as smart as we think we are. There is an awful lot of wisdom in the wrong applications of Job's friends. It's just there. You can't deny it. But let me tell you, if you want to know what overwhelmed Job, it was not the loss of everything. It was not the loss of his children. It was not the uh, request of his wife to curse God. It was not the boils and the loss of his health from head to foot. To toe, he, he dealt with all of those things. But what he couldn't deal with was the eternal flapping of the lips of his friends trying to explain God. You know, that's what we got to get away from. That's why... When, when we have a sermon here, when I preach, I try. I'm not trying to explain God. There are just some things we don't understand about God. And by the way, how small would God have to be for you to understand Him? I'm not trying to be insulting here, but you need to understand something. There's an awful lot in this world that you don't understand. There's an awful, Every once in a while, they'll come up with a new thing. We, we've made a new discovery. It changes everything. Why? Instead of how smart we are to have made this new discovery, how about how stupid we've been not to realize this all along? Isn't that more a proper understanding of this new and great discovery? Hello? Are we still alive this morning? If you want to get messed up, Start listening to men say right things about God that have no idea what they're saying. That's one of the reasons we reject so much of what is called religion today. Who was John Calvin? He was a medieval lawyer. If you read his testimony of salvation... I have very little hope of seeing him on the right side of eternity. People talk about Martin Luther preached grace by faith, salvation in God alone. Yeah, but did you ever read his writings on the fact that if you were not baptized as a baby, you have no hope of eternal life? He wrote that in all of his books. He died a baptized Catholic believing that his baptism as a babe in the Roman Catholic Church was the key to his entrance into heaven. I don't have much hope of seeing Martin Luther on the right side of eternity. And by the way, all of the reformers persecuted the Anabaptist. Those were people who believed like we did. I don't have much respect for them. Because if you believe the truth, why do you persecute it? It tells me you don't believe the truth even though you say you do. Sounds like Job's friends to me. How about you? Commentaries. 
Oh, I am so sick of commentaries. They say, you need to read commentaries to understand your Bible correctly. Boy, I found more confusion in commentaries. It's amazing, some of this... Well, the only word I know is stupid. Forgive me. Uh, Nobody could be that ignorant. You have to have help. I mean, it's just... There's no excuse for the things that they write. But they're just like Job's friends. They're saying the right things. But they don't mean the right thing. When someone who believes in the Mass says, I receive Jesus as my Savior, you know what they're talking about? They're talking about eating that little wafer. What could be more blasphemous than that? That's not my Savior. My Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. And He died on the cross. And when He was on the cross, He said what? It is finished. There's no more work for Him to do. There's no more work for you to do. It's time to stop thinking about it and philosophizing about it and obey it and put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's how you get saved, my friend. Amen? Can you say amen to that? Now, Job's responses were also part of his problems. And if you have said these things... Don't raise your hand or or make some outward sign. Oh my, I did that. Job did some things that are common to human experience. Uh, You can come up to the altar when when we have the invitation and confess it to God and let him know. You know what the first thing Job said in Job chapter 3? He said, I wish I hadn't been born. Now don't raise your hand if you said that. But a lot of us have. You know what we do when we say that? We're charging God with folly for giving us life. That's what we're doing. God is the giver of life. And I've had some troubled people. Why does God let people be born with all these deformities and all these pain and suffering? And I can't explain God. Nor do I intend to try. Because I'll end up like one of Job's friends. But let me tell you one thing. Just to think about. Even in that deformed and pain-ridden body, there's still life. And God wants you to learn how precious it is. And how that it's our job to preserve it. Because life and death belongs to God and not to any man. That's why we're against abortion. That's why we're against mercy killing. You know, they call us pro-life. But they really get upset when we call them pro-death. I don't understand it. If you're going to use the term, shouldn't the opposite term apply to the other side? They call it mercy killing. We call it murder. Oh, it's a physician-assisted suicide, you dummy. No. It's hiring a doctor to kill you. That's, that's not life. 
That was Job's first response. I wish I hadn't been born. Do you see how foolish that is? It also shows that you can't trust God with where he puts you right now. It's time to get rid of these attitudes because this is what tripped Job up. And why did Job say this? In answer to his great grief and in answer to the persecutions of his three friends. What was the next one? Job said, well, let's, let's turn Job chapter 3 and catch this one. We, we have a few minutes here. I'll try to be careful with the time. Verse 25, last two verses. He said, for my sign cometh, I mean, sorry, for the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me. And that which I was afraid of is come unto me. I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. How many of you have ever said, don't raise your hands, I knew something bad was going to happen. Isn't that a natural response? Now, if you robbed a bank, you have a right to say that. Uh, If you have gone out and committed a crime, you, you have a right to say that. If you've transgressed the laws of morality in this book, you have a right to say that. But Job said, I was living right and I still knew something bad was going to happen to me. You know what he's doing there? He's charging God with not taking proper care of himself. You know what the difference between a pessimist and an optimist is? A pessimist looks both ways before they cross a one-way street, right? That's actually pretty smart here in New York City. It could save your life. So I guess we're all pessimists. No. Here's Here's what a real pessimist is. A real pessimist is someone... Who, when something good happens, they believe it's bad. When God really blesses, I've heard people say this. Oh, God is blessing. Oh, no, trouble's coming. What kind of faith is that in God? You know what? If God is in charge, why? do we have to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow? Amen? Let's look at another one. Chapter 6, verse To him that is afflicted, pity should be showed from his friend, but he forsaketh the fear of the Almighty. You know what Job was doing here? He says, you guys are my friends. 
you should at least feel sorry for me. Instead, you're sitting yourself up in a seat of judgment and trying to destroy me. At least feel sorry for me. How many of you have said that? You don't know what I'm going through. At least you can have a little compassion. Hey, wait a minute. What was Job doing right here? He wasn't looking to God for his strength. He was allowing the words of men to move him away from God. You know what? People will always fail you. God never fails. You need to keep your eyes on God. Because people will... This is the hook between true love and false love. Is when I love someone expecting something in return. That's not biblical love. There is not a person in this world that's not going to hurt you at one time or another. And the greater love that you share, the greater opportunity for hurt there is. But what you have to do, you have to stop expecting help from men and know that the only place your help is coming from is from God. This is what tripped Job up. He said some very cruel and mean things to his friends. Not that they didn't deserve it, mind you. But that's not your place. Because our place is to look to God. And this is what tripped Job up. In chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, Job says, I just wish I could die. He said, I would that God would give me my request that he just cut me off, that I could just die and be done with this. I've heard a lot of people say that over the years. I'm not accusing anyone. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, trying not to anyway. But let me tell you something. Wishing you can die, you could die, is cutting yourself off from what God wants to do in your life tomorrow. That's what tripped Job up. That's why he said the things that God had to come down and correct him for. Because he wasn't looking at the life that God has given him. And there's got to be some purpose in this life. And there's got to be something that God has me to do. If you read chapter 29, he said, I wish things could be the way they used to be. Oh, for the good old days. Let me tell you something. You go there, you're leaving the place of safety in God's will. You know what the next one was? Read chapter 30. I wish you guys would just leave me alone. How many people have retired into a shell of isolationism because somebody hurt them? That's where Job was going. And see, it's winding down because when we get to chapter 32, these are Job's last words, except I repent in dust and ashes at the very end of the book. And this is where he actually accuses God of doing wrong because Job knew that he didn't do anything wrong to deserve these things that God had given him.
And Job was absolutely correct in that summation. Job did not have all of those horrible things happen to him because he'd done something wrong. But that doesn't mean that God did something wrong. You see, that's the connection that the human mind and the human heart has to make. But you know who had done something wrong? The devil had. And God was using that sorrow in Job's life to rebuke the devil. Now, there's no way Job could have seen that till he read the words of the book of Job, till he got to heaven. And there are so many things that happen in your life that you have no understanding of what God's doing. But if you sit down and try to figure it out, it will destroy your relationship with God. I mean, people would say, Pastor, I got the point. Would you just lift a hand? Otherwise, if you don't get this, the whole sermon's been a waste. You see, that's ultimately where all of these other things led. And when Job finally got to the end of the line that he was on, then God, through Elihu and himself coming down, had to rebuke Job because there's no way Job could maintain his faith with God believing that God had done something wrong. Finally, Job says, I spoke of things that I know not. Hallelujah. God is bigger than my brain. Amen? God is greater than my understanding. You see, it was not the great calamity that hurt Job that made him stumble in his relationship with God. It was listening to the reasoning of men. Now, I want you to turn with me to one chap, one more verse, and then we're done for good. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm just going to read four verses, and then we're done. Wherefore seeing, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Wherefore seeing, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which just so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. He have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. Can you see how the book of Job is a living commentary on these four verses? You want to know what the weights and the sins are which does so easily beset us? Read where Job tripped up. I wish I wasn't born. I wish things could be the way they used to be. I knew something was going to happen. Oh, I just wish I could die. 
wish things were the way they used to be. I wish I could just have everybody leave me alone. I could be by myself. You know, I know God's perfect. But there's just something not right about this situation. Charging God with having done something wrong. That's where you go. Those are the things that will take you out of the race. What will keep you in the race? Looking unto Jesus. When you have something you don't understand, consider Him. If you have something you just can't contemplate, something that's just totally confusing, here's what you do. Just take it, put it in a little box, and set it aside, and start trying to think of what Jesus had to go through as he left heaven and went to the old rugged cross. Tell you what, you're never going to figure that one out. But after thinking about that imponderable for a little bit, open up your box again and take a look at it. And you'll say, that's nothing. What, what, what's in there? What did I put in there compared to what Jesus did? And it says, you have not yet resisted unto blood. If you're still alive, God has something he wants you to do. So you better get it done. That way you can go to heaven rejoicing instead of, I wish I hadn't been born. You want to finish your race with joy, not with regret. And that's why God corrected Job. When you read the last chapter, Job finished his race with joy. And all God's people say, Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, I pray that the preaching this morning would draw us to your word. And let us see the things that are in this book that are needful for us. And that we would see our own sinful thoughts and ideas and understandings and philosophies brought to us in living color. And Lord, that we would take those things that we have seen and come forward to an old altar and leave them there. That we would confess our sins and forsake it. Lord, if we have someone here that has refused to ask Jesus to be their Savior because of some catastrophic event, that they would look at the things that trip Job up and understand that there's nothing that's happened in their life that should stop them from believing in the cross. We ask you to do your work during this invitation time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Andrew, lead us in the hymn of invitation. If you need to come and pray, the altar's open. If you're not sure about your salvation, would you let us take the Bible and show you?